Well, welcome to this edition of The Mortification of Spin, which is the podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I am your host, Carl Truman. I teach church history at Westminster Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-belligerent, Todd Pruitt, the pastor of some form of (laughs) non-denominational gathering uh, down on the main line of Philadelphia. And we're going to be joined today by a special guest, uh, Steve Nichols, Research Professor of Christianity and Culture at Lancaster Bible College, the Peter Pan of Reformed Theology. <laughs> this won't do. What's the matter with you? All it takes is faith and trust. Oh, and something I forgot. Dust. Dust? Dust. Yup. Just a little bit of pixie dust. Think of the happiest things. It's the same as having wings. Let's all try it just once more. Look, we're rising off the floor. Jim and me. Oh, my. We can fly. You can fly. We can fly. And <laughs> Thank a man you, Carl. Who, if I could put it this way, Steve Nichols has written more books than Todd Pruitt has ever read. <laughs> as long as you exclude graphic novels from Todd's uh, total tally. That's so right. it's great to have you uh, with us, uh, Steve. Uh, Thanks, we Carl. shall treat My you pleasure. with the respect and deference with which we treat each other. I, I would <laughs> expect feel, nothing less. I feel very <laughs> confident about the, the half hour in front of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I know Todd uh, wants to raise one or two issues about church history. Um, clearly, he's the most ignorant man in the room on that <laughs> score. So we'll allow him to ask stupid questions and then we can give snidey and condescending answers. Todd, take it away. Well, thank you for uh, setting that up well. Um, I, I feel incredibly secure now. I, it is interesting spending time with, with church historians. Um, I, I think the question on everybody's mind is, um, you know, what do church historians do for fun? Um, clearly, you're a, you're a fun lot. I mean, I think when people think about adventure and risk-taking and fun and just sheer pleasure, they think about somebody who teaches church history, I think is, <laughs> is probably uh, clear. Um, I, I can say, though, sitting at a table with these two guys, um, whatever, whatever stereotype you might have of a uh, graduate school professor or a university professor, um, these two guys do not fit that mold. They appear to be normal. Uh, reasonably normal, reasonably normal. Um, they can laugh at a good joke. They will even laugh at some of Carl's jokes. Um, but there, you, you, uh, I, like, I wouldn't be embarrassed to be seen in public with either of you, really. Well, the, the feeling is not mutual. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we have uh, Steve Nichols now. I, Steve, first of all, uh, thanks for being with us. And I, sure. I am. Uh, for lack of a better word, I am a fan of your writing. Um, I have most of the books you've published in my library, and I do read them, Carl. I do read them. That's not what he was telling me earlier. <laughs> <laughs> now, but I will so, say this. Just th- don't th- use the word fan. You're going to get me in trouble with Carl. <laughs> yeah, He's going to go into one of go his on. celebrity <laughs> culture he'll, tirades. He'll, he'll, yeah, he'll, he'll start riffing on, on celebrity. He's going to ask you to sign a few copies. <laughs> time, so. Well, although I, ha- having purchased many of your books, Steve, and there's a growing number of them, by the way. But I will say this. You can get up off your knees now, Tom. You made the point. <laughs> Steve, you're a good-looking man and a powerful man. Um, but I, I, I did have a question for you. Yes. 
Carl, of course, is an author too, and he I think is. that explains. He's, a, he's very established. Oxford. He, he publishes with Oxford University. With Press. Oxford, yeah, exactly. And and he 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 signs his letters that way as well. <laughs> and um, but I, I I I can't help but point out the fact that if I want a Steve Nichols book, I can get on Amazon or WTSbooks.org um, and uh, get me a, a copy of of one of your books for. Eleven to nineteen dollars, something like that. Now, if if I go to Amazon and, and plug in Carl Truman's name, a, a book on Luther pops up, and it's like five hundred and eighty dollars or something like that. Steve, does it bother you at all that you don't have a five hundred dollar book? I have to say that's cheap. It's it's worth twice. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> it does. Plus, mine are all paperback. Yours are paperback. Uh, uh, you know, someday I'd like to have a hardcover. Yeah. Yeah, well, that would be that would be nice. I've, I, I've seen them much cheaper at the local consignment store. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> um, in all seriousness, I, I one of the things that Carl and I do periodically on the Mortification of Spin is recommend books, and it's not my turn to recommend a book, but I will say, um, if you are interested in learning more about church history, uh, Steve Nichols is a wonderful place to start. Steve, one of the things that I love that you do is that you make. Uh, church history accessible to laymen and women. You don't have to have seminary training to pick up many of your books because they're intended for a popular audience. Not everything you've written, but I've appreciated so much your book on uh, the, the the life and theology of Martin Luther, on, on your, your book on Machen is wonderful, um, as well as some of the other topics you, you get into. Now, one, one of the books that I've recommended a lot and have appreciated myself a great deal is one that came out uh, ancient Word Changing Worlds, The Doctrine of Scripture in a Modern Age. And what, this is about two or three years old now? Three years old? Three, maybe, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's an excellent introduction on the development of the doctrine of Scripture in the modern age, mainly 20th century, last part of the 19th century. And extremely helpful. Would you say, maybe I'm leading the witness a bit here, but would you say that the doctrine of Scripture is probably um, the most uh, pivotal doctrinal issue within the evangelical church in the last 100 years? Oh, I think it is. I think if you go back, it seems to be the question of modernity right. that started us off in the 20th century. Are we going to submit to an ancient text, or do we know better? And that seems to be very much a dominant question culturally and uh, ecclesiastically discussed in the early part of the 20th century. And of course, we have a side, the theological conservatives, you talk about Machen, we have a side that comes out of that and says that we are going to submit to this word, and that sort of sets us up. Sometimes we call that fundamentalism, but that theological conservatism, and then it flows into evangelicalism, but then in the second half of the century, we got a little more sophisticated in our ability to move out from under Scripture, and I, I think we just continue to do that, but uh, culturally speaking. So it seems to be the question we have to keep coming back to. Are we going to submit to God's Word? It's, it's sort of like the dominoes, you know, that, that your doctrine of Scripture is your first domino. Right. From there, you're going to have your view of God, Christ, humanity, salvation, the church, etc. So, You obviously, in, in the book, you deal a lot with um, the doctrine of, of the Scripture's inerrancy. That's kind of the sharp edge of this entire controversy. And I, I was raised in, in the Southern Baptist Church. You discuss um, a particular uh, event in 1961. A professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is my alma mater, uh, wrote a, uh, a commentary on Genesis. And as far as within 
typically or, or historically um, conservative circles, that event in 1961 was quite a watershed moment because it was coming from a Southern Baptist. And can you just explain briefly what that controversy was? Sure. I think in many ways that becomes uh, the emblem of the whole latter half of the 20th century battle, if you will. And it and it starts in this, well, it's interesting, a lot of these th- things start in the Old Testament. This is what happened back with the Briggs case that Warfield and that initially started the discussion of inerrancy in the 1880s was over the Pentateuch. <laughs> and so here we are in 1960. And so here's a denomination uh, that has its seminary professor putting out a book that really wasn't a scholarly book. It was much more of a popular book that is challenging mosaic authorship. And of course, the issue then is, is the Bible more of a human construct? That's really what the end of that game is. And so it starts this sort of wake up call, if you will, within the Southern Baptists, and you begin to have the launch of the conservative trying to take over the denomination, and that goes long into the 80s, and right. it's quite a story. Right. Um, Carl, you gave a lecture at the church I pastor, Church of the Savior, a few years ago um, that was quite good on on establishing the fact that the doctrine of inerrancy is not, as its enemies will often proclaim, a construct of old Princeton, uh, modern thinking, and and you dispatched that notion quite well. Steve, you deal with that very issue um, in uh, in your book as well, where you I probably plagiarized Carl. Well, I, I, it's it's uh, I, I was wondering about that. Um, That's but, what the research and research professor. <laughs> means, I think. Well, if you what if 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 you borrow from one person, it's plagiarism. If you borrow from a lot of people, it's research. Something like that. <laughs> but but you you also. You present quite well um, that that is just simply a, a, a misunderstanding of the history. And, and, and I say all that to say this is a, a role that good church historians, and I consider you both good church historians, a service you do well for the church because as a pastor, I deal with people's questions all the time about can I rely on this book? Mm, right. And it is work that men like you do, um, Steve, in, in, in this book, Ancient Word, Changing Worlds. Uh, I would feel very confident, and I have felt very confident, giving this book to people who are struggling with some of those questions. Because if they can see, if they can understand that confidence in the utter trustworthiness of Scripture is not something that B.B. Warfield invented. Um, It it wasn't something that just sprung out of modernity at the end of the 19th century, but actually enjoys a rich heritage in Christian thinking going all the way back to Jesus. It makes a difference. And that that leads me into some questions about the continued relevance of church history. Now, this is something, a discipline that you both have given your lives to. And from a pastor's perspective, I find myself appealing to church history more and more as a pastor with normal Christian people who I care about. Um, you know, talk about that a little bit, about, about from, from your own perspective, the continued relevance and the importance in the church of church history, if that makes sense. Well, I think there are numerous positive and helpful functions for church history in the present day. 
in one level, at a very simple level, church history can often provide us with inspiring stories. It's it's good to know that the pro, that the promise of Matthew 16, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that the Lord has been faithful to that promise throughout history. So there's a very, what I would call very basic positive function. It's just helpful to know that the Lord has honored his promises throughout history. When you move up from that level, one could look, for example, at doctrinal confessions. We, the church, any church you belong to will hold to a, a set of doctrines. Well, those doctrines did not just drop off the pages of the Bible into the lap of the church. They've been debated, hashed out, developed, tinkered with over time. Confessions have been produced by the church throughout history in order to try to, make, to synthesize and to make sense of the biblical testimony. And sometimes a doctrine that the church holds might appear a bit weird the first time you see it. A great example I use with the students is, how many wills does Jesus have? The instinctive answer is, well, he has one will because there's just one person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Well, strictly speaking, that's a heretical answer. You know, which will does he lack, the human will or the divine will? Or is it a mixture of the two? Does he, does he not have a human or a divine will, but a kind of synthesis of the two? The real answer is he has, he has two wills. That sounds weird. You're not going to find that anywhere in the Bible. But it's actually quite an important doctrine to hold and understanding the history of how the church came to that conclusion. Very, very important. Same with the Trinity. Uh, people will say, well, language of substance, it's not in the Bible. Language, uh, eternal generation of the Son. We need to get rid of these things because it, it, it's not there in the Bible. Well, it's not there on the surface of the biblical text, but it is a concept that the church has developed that allows us to make sense of the overall teaching, the analogy of Scripture if you like. So I would say there's there's two functions. A third one might be almost the flip side of the, of the first application, and that is church history is made up by flawed human beings. It is amazing to see how the church has survived despite the immorality <laughs> right. and the sin of, of its leadership and its people. So there would be three basic functions I would see church history having. There are more, and I'm sure Steve can yeah, no, throw I, a few I, into the mix. Right. I appreciate, I, I definitely appreciate your perspective. I just I would echo all those. I think um, we were talking about uh, Dietrich Bonfer in an earlier podcast here. He has a great quote where he says, we, we sometimes forget that between uh, the Bible and us, there's not a gap. There's mm -hmm. a history. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think that can inform us in a lot of ways. It can be positive examples, could be negative examples. It can just remind us that we have our limitations and our flaws. But there's, there's no, uh, we don't go back to 90 AD. There, there's a history there. And for better or worse, it's our history. And we are helped by knowing it. But I think a second thing too is a real gift is self-awareness. And it's a true rare gift, I think, to be self-aware. And the more we gain other perspectives, I think the more that helps us in our own self-awareness, which can lead to self-criticism, which uh, sometimes is hard for us. Uh, it's sort of like if you own a mansion and you spend all the time in one room, you're, you're forgetting that you have all these other rooms. And, and I think that many in the 21st century, we just live in the one room when we have these other places we can explore. Yeah. You know, that that's a good analogy. And, and I think particularly probably a good analogy for Carl Truman, who himself um, has published <laughs> many books, travels the world speaking, and no doubt makes an enormous sum of money. So I can only imagine what his home is like. 
Um, You've been in my home. <laughs> <laughs> just about managed to fit you in. It's, uh, yeah, the seminary ego was a bit of a when you arrived, Todd. But, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, and, and again, the prestige of being a seminary professor oh, um, yes. and yeah. the cachet that gives you. You probably get, get a lot get, of free meals at, at, get at restaurants, don't you? Free meals at restaurants, the best seats in the theater. Uh, I get golf club memberships. Free, I think you get a couple of those. Supermarket golf club memberships. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was, I was going to mention something as well as far as, um, again, referring to your, to your very helpful book, Steve, um, Ancient Word Changing Worlds. Um, you, you said something near, near the outset of, of this broadcast that uh, the, the challenge and the question that people have of, uh, can we have confidence in this, in, in this book? And um, it was interesting, not long, Carl, actually not long, just a matter of weeks before you delivered that lecture at, at Church of the Savior a few years ago. Um, I, I, I responded to a, to a call from a young man who'd been attending our church and uh, a, a recent university graduate from a Christian um, uh, institution um, whose record on what they teach about the Bible is rather exotic. And uh, he had come to a place where he just didn't believe anymore. And I so I bring with me to the to the coffee shop to meet him. I bring with me a a Bible and I just set it on the table between us uh, as we begin to talk. And he he just was very open uh, about his struggle believing, and he traced it to some courses he had taken at his Christian college, where his faith in the reliability of Scripture was demolished in his Old Testament classes. And he looked at me and he put his hand on top of the Bible that I held on the table, and he said. At the end of the day, he said, it comes down to authority. He said, can I trust what this book says? And he says, if I cannot trust what it says in the Old Testament, how can I trust what it says about Jesus? Which I thought was an incredibly insightful, accurate... He's right. He is absolutely right. And again, this was where much of your discussion in, in the Ancient Word book was so helpful for me and that I was actually able to draw on some in my, in my conversation with him. Uh, now... His story is ending more happily. The Lord is really blessed and, and uh, birthed fresh new faith in, in his life. But his struggle was uh, very a very, very real um, struggle because what he had heard is that inerrancy uh, was a, just a latter-day construct to be rejected, um, even in the words of a, of a local Old Testament professor, uh, that inerrancy is immoral. Um, and, and so... Again, my appreciation for for this book because you not only trace the history, um, you show that that inerrancy is not an exotic new doctrine for the church. Um, even if the word is fairly more modern, certainly, and Carl, you pointed this out out as well. You can trace the doctrine itself um, throughout uh, the history of the church. Um, you both teach in in Christian institutions. How do you see this play out um, in the institutions where you teach as far as students go and their own struggle with faith, confidence in the Word? I know, Carl, you've had, just based on some of my conversations with you personally, you've had some interesting pastoral opportunities in the lives of some students, even in, in your institution, on this very issue and yourself having been involved quite publicly in uh, in a controversy 
over the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, Steve, I, you know, the same question would go to you. Um, uh, how real is this struggle in the lives of, of students? Well, you know, I, my place is a Bible college, and uh, we're f- we're in Lancaster. Yes, <laughs> so we're fairly conservative. <laughs> yeah, uh, and you 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 don't have any electrical power in your house. Is no, that uh, no. In fact, I I have to go. You know, we have the phone booth outside. We have to go out. <laughs> is and it your pony and trap? I can see. <laughs> my buggy, my buggy is out there. So you there. set out yesterday to arrive we, here. We, right? Yes. <laughs> but we are a fairly conservative place. I. I you know, it's interesting you say that. I, I th- I'm just trying to think here. And I think the more interaction I have with students probably is after they leave. Yeah. And then, you know, if, I know I look young, but I've been at this for like 15 years now. Well, you've got that picture we know about in the attic. <laughs> <laughs> One of the perks. It looks awesome right now. Yes. <laughs> so, so even students who are out five, ten years, I'm getting emails from them. And they're, they're asking these kinds of questions, mm-hmm. I think more so than the students I have. And you know, I think it's you can you can make arguments and you can present data or you can plumb because I think usually when people are are making a case against scripture, they'll talk that there's some sort of scientific data pool from which they're drawing. Right. But when you press them, uh, they're a little bit at a loss to right. to actually make a case. I think it really is more of an existential or a question of this is a hard book to submit to. I mean, you know, there's a sense in which we, when we submit to it, we love it and we delight in it, but it also makes demands on us. And a life that you don't have to have this book govern you, that could be appealing. Uh, You know, so I think I bump into those kind of things more, I think. Um, You know, even, uh, it's not a student of mine, but my roommate, I went to a Bible college myself, my roommate, he was pastor, uh, called me, do we really need the historical Jesus to have faith? You know, when you begin plumbing, it's it's just a question of, I like a more loose Christianity. I mean, I don't know, Carl, you probably have experience with this too, but. I would say it's there's always, in the people I've met who've had crises of faith on this front, it is never simply an intellectual crisis. There's always more going on. That's not to belittle the serious questions that they have about Scripture and about Scripture's teaching. But it is to say they are, I sound too postmodern, but we're embodied human beings. And the whole of life is involved in the sort of challenges that come to scriptural text. And as Steve was speaking there, I was thinking of Luther's own reflections on the fall of Adam and Eve in his lectures on Genesis, where Luther makes it very clear that uh, the doubting of the word of God in Genesis 3, it's a moral issue. Right. The very first doubt about did God really say is moral. Clearly, there's going to be an intellectual component to it. This question about, you know, is God trustworthy? Can yeah. I trust his word? But the bottom line in the Garden of Eden is the, is the moral aspect and the submission. Uh, do I want to submit to the word of God or do I want to submit to some word that really is much more conducive to myself? So I would... I would agree with what Steve said, and I've asked uh, older pastors on occasion about this and said, uh, you know, do you find that when people are having serious doubts about the Bible, it's, I remember saying once, it, it, it's sometimes a moral issue, and the, the pastor said, it is always right. a moral issue. There are varying degrees and there are varying kinds of issue it can be, but if the Bible is God's speech, uh, in the same way that, uh, you know, if I talk to my children and they struggle with my instructions to them, 
that represents a dysfunction within our relationship, either on my side, their side, or on both. Mm. Uh, struggling with the word of God as it comes to us shows that there is some kind of dysfunction within the between the one who speaks and those who are meant to listen and submit. Hi, welcome back to SourceFed. I'm Lee Newton. I'm Elliot Morgan. Turns out that Jesus Christ is still one of the world's most influential figures. Oh no! You know, besides the millions of followers that he has 2,000 years after his death. You know, blah, blah, blah. But you know, not influential in the sense of like religion, morals, and politics. Influential in the internet sense. MIT University used a whole bunch of data gathered from Wikipedia to rank famous figures through history in terms of their global reach and in terms of searches. Now this is awesome because sure we're all used to the normal Forbes and People and Time Magazine articles about pop icons and sports stars being the most influential, whatever that means contextually, people. And for the sake of not paraphrasing, dictionary.com defines influential when a noun as person who exerts or can exert strong influence. But what, my friends, is influence? Well, it's defined as the capacity or power of persons or things to be a compelling force on or produce effects on the actions, behavior, opinions, etc. of others. This list of most influential people ranks religious figures and Greek philosophers. You know, all the people that if they lived nowadays would totally have their own TLC show called like Hippie Philosopher or like Confucius Say What? Say what? I have one random question for Steve. Um, who's the most important, the most pivotal figure in church history in the 20th century? And you're not allowed to say Todd or myself. <laughs> yeah, please leave me out of this. Please. You'll just embarrass me. Oh, that's a hard question to answer. You know, if you asked me while I was writing the Machen book, I would have said Machen, but I just came off a Bonifer book, so I'm tempted to say Bonifer. So if we ask you uh, to write a book from Joe Austin, <laughs> you say <laughs> Hey, I'm trying to sell books. So, uh, yeah, it's whoever I'm writing about at the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a tough one, but I, I definitely think... Um, I, I will take the American, I will take Machen. I think if you're looking for a book that is uh, timeless and helpful, it is Christian liberalism. Yes. And whether or not you're with that book, even if you're against that book, that, 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 that book, I think, is a, is a nice barometer of where you stand in the 20th century, 21st century. I would agree. I would agree. Defines the issues at stake very nicely, I think. And, and I would recommend your book on Machen, a guided tour of his life and thought. It's excellent, excellent popular introduction um, to Machen, to who I would agree, I believe, is, is the most important figure in, in modern uh, church history. Um, I would also commend to people's reading your very wonderful little introduction to the Reformation, um, a monk and, how a monk and a mallet uh, Change the world. Uh, it's My a, wife gave that subtitle. By oh, the way. that's outstanding. Yeah, I, had, a, I think terrific. I had something about a hammer, a hammer wielding former monk, German or guy. Your or wife something. is she a writer as well. She is we, a writer. She, she, she actually yeah. writes all my books. Yeah. I just well, it's it, it's a terrific it's a man's world, introduction. Man. It's a man's world. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to uh, to thank uh, Dr. Stephen Nichols, <laughs> research professor at Lancaster Bible College. Steve, it's been great having you on again. I commend his books to you. And uh, we're very uh, thankful that you joined us for this installment of um, The Mortification of Spin. I'm Todd Pruitt. And for Carl Truman, who's also a well-known author and Christian celebrity. And uh, I travel a lot in case you haven't <laughs> picked up uh, to Australia. <laughs> yes. Thank you for joining us. Please check out the uh, website for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, which is, Carl, what is that address? Alliancenet.org. Perfect. You should have to have it tattooed on your wrist. I I should do that. (laughs) Thank you for joining us.